Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Frank Snepp. Frank Snepp was a CIA officer during the Vietnam War, and he was there at the fall of Saigon. On this episode, we discuss the similarities and differences between the fall of Saigon and the fall of Kabul. We also take a look at the intelligence picture that led to some of the chaotic scenes that we witnessed over the weekend. I hope you find this episode interesting. Thank you for listening. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Frank, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here. Great to have you on. For the benefit of listeners who haven't listened to our previous chat, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. You know, I'm one of the few spectators to the unfolding mess in Afghanistan who has both a directly relevant intelligence background and also Mm. experience as an eyewitness to the only other mass evacuation in recent U.S. history, the evacuation of Saigon. I was at the center of that. I was the senior CIA intelligence analyst in Saigon. I was at the heart of debate over whether and when an evacuation should be mounted. And uh, I was a voice in the wilderness against those who wanted to delay the evacuation. So I have um, a terrific stake and an emotional involvement in what we are seeing unfold in Afghanistan today. I can imagine. I mean, I, I mean, you know, you've seen the same images I've seen both on the internet and on television. And it's, you know, it's frankly quite shocking. And there's been comparisons drawn with the fall of Saigon. There's even one image around on the internet where it's almost virtually the same kind of helicopter hovering over the American embassy. So, Frank, how does it sort of feel for you with your experience watching all this sort of unfold live on television? Well, First, uh, just to complete my own biography, autobiography, Hmm. I wrote a book about what I went through during the fall of Saigon, hoping to shame the U.S. government into learning lessons from it. I was prosecuted for publishing the book without approval. It was called Decent Interval, published in 1978, just a year or so after the fall of Saigon. The U.S. military excoriated me for flaying old wounds, and a lot of the lessons I hoped would be learned were buried. Mm. So there was with a certain bitterness that I look at what's happening now. And I must confess, Chris, that I have been suffering because of this mess in Afghanistan a resurgent of the fever dreams, the PTSD fever dreams that I brought with me out of Saigon off the roof of the embassy. I was among the last 17 CIA officers to be evacuated, choppered off the roof of that embassy. Mm. And everything I'm reading about what's going on now recalls memories of Vietnamese calling in over the radio circuits of the embassy, begging not to be left behind. It was heart-wrenching because we had had time to prepare for their evacuation. And also, it's very hard to convey to someone who hasn't been through an evacuation. And 
Thank God there are a few have been in the past like this, but Saigon was one like this. And one of the things we had to do, those of us in the embassy who were determined to get out as many of our friends as possible, we had to learn to play God. Mm. We don't have experience doing that. You had to make decisions about who would be saved, who would be left behind, whether or not somebody's association with the CIA was more important, made them a higher risk Vietnamese than, say, an American guy's uh, Vietnamese wife. Mm. And often the choices were made on emotional grounds rather than calculated security grounds. Consequently, many of the people, almost all of the people we got out of Vietnam in the end, and there I'll give you figures eventually, but very few of them were high risk. Most of them were emotional connections. And I know that's what the people in the airport outside of Kabul are going through. They're playing God. And it is a traumatic experience because it leaves you with a sense of guilt. I was, I, there was a Vietnamese woman who came out of the woodwork in the last hours of the evacuation of Saigon. Mm. She came out with a, to me with an American or an Amerasian baby, and she said it was mine. Now, many Vietnamese women were doing this. They were suddenly turning up with Amerasian children and begging that an American in the embassy would evacuate them and claiming that the child was somehow theirs. I don't know whether this woman was telling me the truth, but um, and I wasn't going to debate it with her, obviously. She told me that if I couldn't get her out, that uh, she would kill herself and the child. And when she called me, I was busy trying to persuade the ambassador, Graham Martin, that it was time to evacuate. And the CIA station chief had just sent me to the edge of Saigon to see if we could locate the North Vietnamese army, which was mm. just on the outskirts, because he wanted to see if they were standing down to allow for a negotiated settlement, which had been his dream. We were pinned down. I was unable to get back. I never got to that Vietnamese woman. I had made a choice to do my duty as an intelligence agent to obey orders to go out and look for the enemy. Mm. And I had betrayed the trust that this woman had placed in me. I had played God and made the wrong decision. And it haunts me to this day. I can see the faces of Vietnamese who were abandoned, the defectors, yeah. Uh, people I had worked with, I can see them drifting across the room at night. So I do not think that those who are going through what I went through in Saigon now in Afghanistan are going to have an easy future. Um, so, well, thank you for sharing all that. That's, um, you know, obviously, I don't even know how to sort of comment on such an experience. It's it's awful. How surprised were you then by what's unfolded in Kabul? Well. Let me put it this way. I have an infinite sympathy for Joe Biden, and that's because I think he was rolled. We learned a major lesson in Vietnam, and that is that the U.S. military and its geniuses should not be allowed to judge the proficiency of their product. The proficiency of the client army, be it an Afghan army or a Vietnamese army that they have nurtured, trained, and bankrolled. There was in Saigon every day a news conference, which we used to call the five o'clock follies. That was where military briefers would spin the latest developments 
on the war to make it look as though our allies were doing just fine. They were unwilling because of their, the military's invested, U.S. military's invested interest in the Arvin, South Vietnamese army, to impute any inefficiency to them. And they gave them always the benefit of the doubt. That's what happened in 20 years of the never-ending war in Afghanistan. The military did the same thing. And I'm not guessing at this. I know it from reading something published by the Washington Post called the Afghanistan Papers, which reflected interviews with people who had participated in our operations in Afghanistan over the past 20 years. And the military people who were interviewed, including General Milley, who was the deputy commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan at one point and now is our Joint Chiefs of Staff chairman, he kept reiterating to reporters from 2013, 2011, whatever, that things were just fine, that the Afghan army was doing just terrifically, even though his compatriots in the military in their own interviews for the Afghanistan papers admitted severe doubts, admitted that the Afghan army suffered from literacy, from terrific desertions. And so all I can say is that I was not surprised that the evacuation staggered into being in Afghanistan. Uh, we had made the same mistakes in Vietnam and the lessons had gone unlearned. And in fact, we had the same kind of situation in Vietnam as finally eventuated in Afghanistan. For instance, we had a, a government in Afghanistan, as in Saigon, it was basically a criminal enterprise. It was so shot through with corruption that it couldn't command anybody's permanent loyalties. It couldn't even cover, particularly the one in Afghanistan, the Ghani government couldn't even cover salaries of the army for periods of up to nine months. What? How can you possibly support such a government? But we did in Vietnam, and we did once again in Afghanistan, all of which goes to show you shame is a poor teacher. We should have been better prepared. In addition, we we forgave the army in both countries its weaknesses. The U.S. military did, as I was saying. And we adopted a nation-building strategy in both countries that involved the creation of a patchwork of secure enclaves, which were beholden to CIA bagmen, to military bagmen, to military mm. U.S. military protection, mm. but that had no allegiance to the central government. And in each case, the central government, be it in Kabul or in Saigon, responded by trying to bring the localities, these patchwork leopard spots of security, under control by creating a top-down bureaucracy of yes-men beholden to the authorities in the central government. And in and what that did, it set up centrifugal forces. It didn't bring the countries together into a co coherent nation. What it did is it blew them apart. And it happened in both countries, so there was never any real nation building. The Bush administration in Afghanistan adopted this policy. General Petraeus, who uh, invented the Sunni awakening in Iraq, did the same thing in Iraq. He, he would pacify certain sections of Iraq and or Afghanistan. He later became commander in Afghanistan. And he never saw to it that the patches were connected to the whole. And so the countries never 
coalesced, neither Vietnam, South Vietnam, nor Afghanistan. And as I indicated, the military fell, the U.S. military in both countries fell prey to what I call the five o'clock folly syndrome, which was the tendency to give the benefit of the doubt to our client armies. So, and they never recognize their weaknesses. Now, a lot of things have happened in Afghanistan that remind me of Vietnam, but some are different. For instance, let's talk about the Doha Peace Treaty, which was the one that Trump initiated and pursued in February of 2020. In effect, it signaled that U.S. military was standing down and would get out of Afghanistan as of, say, May of this year. And at that time, the Taliban began playing a very cagey game. They stopped targeting Americans. They made it appear that Americans were just A-OK. That didn't mean that they were not targeting the Afghans themselves, but they were not necessarily targeting them militarily. What they were doing was buying them off locality by locality by locality. And one particular person who was involved in this, one Afghan, told the Washington Post recently that when the Americans stepped aside, in effect, with the Doha agreement with the Taliban, no one was around to police corruption. And traitors within the government ranks stepped out and began being bought off by the Taliban. Mm. And all this was happening sub rosa. We weren't watching this carefully. Oh, there were some U.S. military guys who said, yeah, something bad has happened. There is sort of a false calm in the countryside. The fact that there are a few American casualties really doesn't mean very much. In the annual threat assessment of 2021, and I want to tell you something about intelligence assessments and your audience, because they may not understand. It's a little bit wonkish, but yeah. bear with me a little bit. When I speak of an annual intelligence assessment or an interagency intelligence assessment, I'm talking about community intelligence, community-wide assessment that's been coordinated among all of the American intelligence agencies. It doesn't focus on CIA projections or reporting. It, co it What it does is to massage everybody's reporting to make it sort of coalesce into one mushy hole. <laughs> yeah. And the Pentagon agencies, which have been traditionally much more optimistic about our allies always, whether in Vietnam or Afghanistan, have an equal say with alarmists in the CIA. And what that means is alarmism is watered down. And any projections, it would put a time frame on, say, the collapse of the Afghan government are watered down. They are mushed over. And that's what began to happen with the annual intelligence assessment in April of 2021, mm. just a few months ago. It predicted that the Taliban would make significant gains. So the intelligence community could say, well, we were right about that, weren't we? And it also said the government would have trouble surviving. Mm. But it did not put a time frame on the disintegration of the government. The military's can-do attitude, which it had in Vietnam and which it had in Afghanistan, translated into an inability to accurately assess the true weaknesses of our allies. Yeah. In April, Biden announced that U.S. troop withdrawals would proceed without conditions and end in summer. Now it's the end of August. 
And the State Department, and people may not realize this, but the State Department then launched a drawdown of non-essential Americans. Folks, that's an evacuation. So anyone says that Biden wasn't attentive to the need for evacuating Americans just doesn't know what he's talking about or she is talking about. That meant that they began sneaking out people who no longer had an active use in Afghanistan. The same thing happened in Vietnam. We began drawing down non-essential Americans. That same April, the interagency intelligence assessment said that Taliban takeover was 18 months away. So there was no urgency, theoretically, about accelerating this ongoing drawdown. By the way, what happened in the meantime from April forward was the erosive tactics that the Taliban had pursuing, the buying off of province chiefs and town councils and what have you proceeded. Cardoos fell, Herat fell, Helmut fell, Kandahar fell, all within this period. And I say fell, they simply slipped under Taliban control. These processes were disguised as ceasefires mm. in place. But what was actually happening was a Taliban ink blot was just spreading and spreading and spreading very quietly. Mm. So there wasn't, as in Saigon, there weren't attacks on various places to send the alarms to everybody. The takeover by the Taliban was sub rosa. It was happening, but not in a way that would excite the American people. But we already had ongoing a drawdown. Now, come July, what happens in July, just a few months ago? The intelligence assessment, again, I'm talking about community-wide coordinated assessment, said the Afghan government could hang on for two years. That was the U.S. military's analysts giving the benefit of the doubt to the Afghan army. Now, by the way, there's no way to determine how long a country or a military can last. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But in any event, something else was going on that affected the pace of the drawdown. Biden acknowledged this in his press conference the other day, very obliquely. But what we now know is what this was what was going on. He was secretly trying to persuade the Afghan government to make concessions to the Taliban, which the U.S. intelligence community as a whole was said were essential to preservation of the government. Now, Biden could not possibly accelerate the ongoing drawdown without undermining the Ghani government, which was in the process of trying to negotiate mm. some kind of concessions out of the Taliban. Mm. So those who say that Biden was just careless and clueless and inept don't know what they're talking about because what Biden was doing was to try to preserve the stability necessary for the very, very flawed Ghani government to tease out concessions from the other side. You can't do that when you're pulling the rug rapidly out from under. So all these people say, well, why didn't you start earlier? Why didn't you begin moving people en masse into this air base outside of the Karzai air base outside of Kabul? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you? Because there were very, very delicate secret peace feelers being made and feelers being made by the Ghani government. And Biden says Ghani himself asked him, the president of the United States, please do not accelerate the drawdown, because if you do, 
you'll leave me empty-handed. I won't be able to deal with the Taliban. As late as one week before Kabul's fall, the interagency, again, I want to emphasize that intelligence assessment, not the CIA's estimate, but the agreed estimate was no Taliban takeover was imminent. Quick question. How does that differ from the president's daily briefing? Because that's a CIA document, isn't it? The CIA document is coordinated. I used to write for the president's daily brief. Mm. And what you have to do to get an item in there, you write it based on your intelligence. Then what you do is you call up your counterpart in the Pentagon, NSA, uh, DIA, and whatever, all the other intelligence agents, State Department, and you say, what do you guys think? And you spent the rest of the day negotiating wording that will accommodate their objections. Now, under and, and here's the real problem. It was the creation of the director of national intelligence on top of all of these agencies, which now has become the coordinating body for the intelligence community. And it, what it does is add another bureaucracy, another another sieve, which can filter out true alarmist reporting. Averill Haynes is now the a director of national intelligence for the Biden administration. She was previously a deputy director of the CIA, a very accomplished woman. But she has to accommodate in her position the views of the Pentagon, NSA, CIA, and what have you. And what happens is even now, the president's daily brief must be coordinated with the director of national intelligence. There wasn't one when I was in the CIA. So you have another layer, another filter that means that some of the alarmist reporting that is not adhered to by other agencies won't get into the analysis. And by the way, oftentimes disagreements occur not because the other agencies have countervailing intelligence, that stuff that disagrees with your conclusion. They just, just don't have any intelligence at all, which happened a lot in, with the Pentagon. And so they would simply say, we cannot support your conclusion. And that comment, goes into the president's daily brief and it's it casts doubt yeah. over an alarmist dispatch so the consensus approach to intelligence analyses which came into sort of new being or took a new form after 911 the creation of the Director of National Intelligence was a result of 9/11 the effort to better coordinate US intelligence but what's happened is it gives no nothings in the intelligence community or, uh, or poor gatherers of intelligence like DIA, which really doesn't have many assets, equal voice or at least a countervailing voice to what's happening or coming out of, say, the CIA. And we're seeing glimpses of this. Just a few days ago in the Washington Post, there was an article. The headline was, there were warnings that uh, this was all going to happen. And Biden was so wrong and blah, blah, blah. Down in the story, there was discussion of the interagency intelligence analyses that were counter to the alarmist reports that supposedly Biden should have heeded. But what, what, what this story really meant was those alarmist reports had been superseded or, or overshadowed by the community-wide assessments. I think one of the conclusions we're going to come away from this crisis with is that we shouldn't have such coordinated intelligence, or we shouldn't even have a director of national intelligence. We should go back to a system where the CIA is 
the central intelligence organization. It does the coordinating. So, and it's the agency of the U.S. government that runs spies, that has human intelligence sources. It doesn't rely simply on radio intercepts and what have you. And so, and if you're going to get alarmism, that's where you're going to get it. If you're going to get a high-level view of the intelligence, it's through human intelligence sources run by the CIA. So I think one of the lessons we're going to get out of all of this, as I say, is that let's get back to classic intelligence analysis, the kind that actually I was dealing with, where the CIA has a louder voice in this room, or at the very least, the centers have to make clear that they have no intelligence to countervail what the CIA, which does have its assets, is saying. Believe me, that is the lesson we should learn from it. It's not that Joe Biden was incompetent. It's not that Joe Biden wasn't paying attention. It wasn't that Joe Biden was stupid not to do this or that. It was that he was rolled by Defense Intelligence Agency, Pentagon intelligence analyses, and analysis that were determined by the five o'clock folly syndrome, a prejudice on the part of U.S. military agencies to give the benefit of the doubt to our client or allied armies, the armies that they train. That is the lesson we should come away with. And all this finger pointing is just beyond aggravating. It's incredible to me. And so all I can say is that these people who are now saying, oh, well, uh, you know, we could have moved right away and blah, blah, blah. No, you have to factor in that the Ghani government was trying to negotiate with the Taliban. You move quickly, you hasten people to the airport, you begin collecting people en masse, you signal everybody we're leaving and we're mounting an evacuation. That's chaos, baby. And you'll never get, you'll never have an evacuation under the circumstances. So stealthily moving to where you can mount one is actually a sensible move. And that's one of the lessons of Vietnam. But, but the sins we committed in Vietnam were for, far graver than any of those being alleged against Biden, whether or not you believe my analysis or not. People forget that in Saigon, the U.S. ambassador and the CIA station chief actively opposed evacuation planning. It wasn't they were slow. It wasn't that they, they were ham-handed. They actively opposed planning for an evacuation of anybody. From over the last four weeks of the war, we couldn't mount a major drawdown effort Oh, it was ordered by the Pentagon and the White House, draw down, sent home non-essential people. But as in Afghanistan, if you're one of these non-essential, you're an American who's been a, you know, a secretary or whatever at the embassy, you're not going to leave until your, your Vietnamese or Afghan friends will leave. And so you stay in place. You don't just, bye-bye, I'm leaving. And that means you have no movement towards the exits. And that's one of the things that happened in both places. So there are, there are so many factors that come into play. But in Vietnam, the additional factor, which you didn't have, you haven't had in Afghanistan, was that the people in charge really believed there should be no evacuation. And that's because, follow me if you can, and it's a little bit complicated, but that's because they believed there would be a negotiated settlement or a diplomatic solution to the crisis. Yeah. 
There would yes. be no need for an evacuation. Mm. And believing that, and they were drawing on rumors from French diplomats in Saigon and Hungarian diplomats, believing that there would be a negotiated settlement, they decided that any lurch towards the exits, any effort to plan for an, a major evacuation, would be destabilizing and would destroy chances for negotiated settlements, exactly why Biden couldn't start mounting an evacuation in July of massive consequences because he was trying to give Ghani some breathing room to negotiate the concessions from the Taliban that the U.S. intelligence agency said were essential for Ghani's survival. So this was all a very subtle game being played. But in Saigon, it went crazy. And the ambassador and the, and the CIA station chief, Tom Pogar, my immediate boss, simply wouldn't move. They, they stalled all planning. They opposed it. They misled Kissinger and the White House into believing that things were going just smoothly. Everybody was moving out, blah, blah, blah. And what was most horrible of all for me was that we had absolutely impeccable intelligence that there would be no negotiated settlement. The implication was, therefore, folks, let's get the hell out of Dodge. Let's accelerate planning for an evacuation. Where did that information come from? From two agents I was directly in touch with. One was based in Hanoi, and the other was planted inside the Communist Command in the South. I dealt with both of them. Both of them told me in early April, three weeks before the end, that the communists were on a blood scent. They wouldn't stop for negotiations. And negotiations, all the talk of negotiations, were stratagems to keep us off balance. Just baloney. It was mind fake stuff. The ambassador and the station chief wouldn't believe this. And they continued to slow walk evacuation planning. There was a chance there. Now, this was not true in Afghanistan because there was no coastline there. But there was a chance we could have moved hundreds of thousands of imperiled Vietnamese to the coast and for them to be plucked off the beaches by U.S. aircraft or vessels. But Ambassador Morton wouldn't allow it. He said that would destabilize the situation and make the negotiations impossible. So what was horrible to me is, and why I am so bitter about what happened in Vietnam is that I was directly involved with two agents, our best agents, who told us what was going to happen, did happen. The communists were going to be in Saigon to celebrate Ho Chi Minh's birthday in May. And they would begin their attack exactly when they did. And they would bring in airstrikes and artillery on Tonsonut Air Base, which was the platform for mounting an evacuation. Now, the last report from the agent inside the Communist Command did prompt Henry Kissinger and the Pentagon to begin reconfiguring the embassy and the whole evacuation plan that had lain more or less dormant to accommodate a helicopter airlift. We began tearing down guy wires in the embassy yard, whatever, to make room for the big choppers from the fleet that finally saved us. Mm. So this this agent, this Viet, brave Vietnamese agent who gave us this intelligence was vindicated, if only because he his information helped set the stage for the helicopter airlift that finally saved us. Okay, the guy was captured and he killed himself by hanging himself with his belt. He was left behind. But this Vietnamese hero, help save the Americans and salvage the U.S. evacuation. 
And he was a lone voice in the wilderness because I was his echo. I was a lone voice in the wilderness. I'm sure that somewhere in the CIA, somewhere in the old community that operated out of the Kabul embassy, the, the intelligence community, there are voices in the wilderness who warn the ambassador there, warned their home offices, get us out of here. Don't believe any, there's no, no real chance for any kind of accommodation with the Taliban. Yeah, and that was Vauvan Ba was the agent, wasn't it? The agent's name was Vauvan Ba, and we discussed him in other broadcasts. Mm. His importance looms even larger against the backdrop of the Afghan situation. Because when you have an agent, you have a real source of alarm. You should heed him. And we didn't do that in Vietnam. We continued to let the ambassador, or he insisted, on pursuing a negotiated settlement at the expense of orderly evacuation planning. There probably were Vauvan Ba's or his equivalent in Afghanistan, but clearly they were not heeded. But I don't think we can blame Joe Biden for that. Again, it's a kind of prejudice and built into the intelligence apparatus. Yeah. How many um, numbers of people do you think we're going to manage to get out of Afghanistan versus how many we got out of Vietnam? Well, I was asked April 1975 to make an estimate of the number of Vietnamese I thought should be eligible for an evacuation. Mm. And there was no way to make a real estimate. And the reason my station chief, Tom Polgar, asked me to do it is because he wanted to demonstrate that an evacuation would be impossible and therefore negotiations were the only way. So it was a calculated request. And I answered it by saying, the best I can do is thinking about all the Vietnamese who work for U.S. agencies over the years and their families, the number of people we should be aiming to evacuate numbers, one million people. The White House received that estimate, upped it to 1.5 for reasons I never quite understood. Then President Ford decided to cut it back to 200,000 Vietnamese who we should evacuate and 6,000 Americans. The 6,000 Americans were the, was an accurate figure because it was based on a study of PX, the liquor rations at the PX, and that was how many Americans we thought were in Saigon at the time. There are 10,000 Americans at the very least, or maybe more, in Afghanistan now. So that's by comparison. The figure of 200,000 as a target evacuation figure in Vietnam compares to, I think, 80,000, which is the figure being attached to the number of Afghans, uh, loyalists who should be evacuated. Those are both staggering figures. There's no way to evacuate that many people. Or the only way to do it is uh, if you mm. have a shoreline to send them to mm. the shore so mm. that they can picked up, be picked up off the beaches. That's not an option available in Afghanistan. The other option available in Afghanistan is establishing assembly points outside of the immediate airbase area and sending in choppers, special forces people to pick them up. There are two words that are also an answer to the problem. Rat lines. Rat lines. After the fall of Vietnam, I went to Bangkok to try to set up rat lines, meaning smuggling operations back into Vietnam to move out people we had left behind. It never, this never went very far because CIA headquarters wanted to forget Vietnam. The administration wanted to forget Vietnam, the humiliation and what have you. But Afghanistan is a different terrain entirely. Though no shoreline, 
It has vast areas, uninhabited areas, or areas just out of inhabited areas where you could, if you could set up communications, you could send in special forces with choppers and pull out select numbers of people. That could happen down the line. And by the way, the evacuation story in Afghanistan hasn't been told yet. All of the people are wringing their hands saying, oh, this is such a disaster. No, friends, it's ongoing. It's where we were in early April, one month before the end in Saigon. We still have at least a week or so before any deadline. And now Biden is saying the period for an evacuation may extend it beyond that. What you cannot do, and General Milley was exactly right in Secretary of Defense Austin the other day, yesterday, in saying they cannot expand the perimeter of the airbase out to bring other people in. They can't do it. Otherwise, we, we go back to waging war. And very frankly, it would not be a favorable circumstance, given, given the way the Taliban are arrayed at this particular time. Crawling out of a country standing up is impossible. A retreat is the most difficult of all military operations, and an evacuation is predestined to be seen as a disaster because not anybody, not everybody you want to get out is ever going to be gotten out. You have to begin in the starkest, cold-eyed way, prioritize your evacuation. I'm sorry, for folks, they're not going to be able to get out. Never would have been able to get out all the Afghans that we owe something to. And we really have to focus on the people who are high risk and relatives of Americans and, of course, Americans, and then sort of build out from there. As I say, we can use rat lines later, but you cannot do that all now. And for Joe Biden to be held responsible for those kind of priorities is just obscene. It's obscene. Well, it's almost it's almost the argument to go back in. Well, of course it if is. If you want to protect the Afghan women, it's, it's the argument to go back in, isn't it? And the, the crazy thing is, and poli- people will scream and yell, uh, say this, yeah. but we, have, we are in an odd situation where human rights activists, liberals, are basically arguing that we should put at hazard American GIs in order to promote or to enforce American cultural values in a country that is on the edge of the Stone Age. I mean, really? And we're going to judge Biden because he can't rescue all of these people who fall under some guy, some person's or in some person's bucket? I'm sorry, that's not moral. That's crazy. Mm. Well, yeah, as far as I can tell from my armchair general position, the only other options are kind of um, South-North Korea divide type situation where you cut the country in half and keep troops there. But it means you'd have to enforce that for 50 to 100 years. That's the only other option, isn't it? You know, the argument that Biden made mm. for withdrawal was vindicated the moment the Afghan army and government collapsed without a fight. And I'm sorry, folks, the Afghans who now are so dependent on the United States. Uh, this is terrible to say, and I, but I will say it. They should pick up a rifle. They should pick up a rifle and defend themselves. Because it is time is over, folks, for the Americans to bear that burden. It just can't be done. And and those people who argue, and I've heard it again and again in the recent days, 
American credibility is at stake. You know, Europeans think the United States can't be, be relied on because Joe Biden didn't get out every person we should be getting out and hasn't planned to do so. Folks, the Trump administration practiced a foreign policy that involved an orgiastic experiment in leaving allies in the lurch. That destroyed our credibility. Joe Biden is in nowhere in that category. And these Europeans who are blasting him, I think, are worried about the influx of, of refugees. Mm. You know something? They're trying to cover their butts. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm not an apologist for Biden. And I'm not a hater of the U.S. military intelligence apparatus, but we have to be clear-eyed about this. And our credibility doesn't hang on the evacuation of everybody we owe something to or who work with us. One of the things, by the way, that distinguishes Afghanistan from the Vietnam situation was that the paperwork for an evacuation was Certified by Congress, I think there were the emergency evacuation visas, whatever they were called. I think they were authorized in 2008 or several hundred years ago. But And they were extremely complicated. They should have been streamlined. But they were in place. We didn't even have that authorization to move immigrants out of Vietnam into the United States anywhere. It, it happened only in the last three weeks of the war, last two weeks of the war in Vietnam. So we were, uh, we were ahead of the curve in Afghanistan. Those demands or the, those proscriptions, which were laid down by the U.S. Congress, are very meticulous. If you work for an American agency, you have to get certification from that agency. If you work for an American contractor, that's somehow difficult in Afghanistan. It isn't difficult because the contractors are often gone. So you can't easily check off all the boxes to get your, your immigration, emergency immigration visa. All of that should be done away with at this particular point, that paperwork. And Biden should do that. And I think it's happening de facto on the ground. <laughs> you know, the, the State Department people, they are checking off who's got the visa and who aren't. They're saying it just passed right on through. But that doesn't answer the question, who's first in the boarding lines? And that's a moral choice, and it's playing God. And it is impossible, and those who are doing it this uh, this time round are going to suffer the consequences, believe me, because I have. And so have other Americans who are on, at the boarding lines and trying to get people out of Saigon in the final days. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up today? I think that that just about does it. I apologize mm. for having let my post-traumatic stress surface and my anger because a lot of people who pretend to be experts and very moral these days are asking too much of the American administration, which actually is a little bit further along than they give the administration credit for. And those of you listening to this podcast, please weigh what I've said about the warnings that Biden was dealing with. They were imprecise, and they were imprecise because the U.S. military had a stake in downplaying the inefficiencies and flaws in our client army, the Afghan army. It happened in Vietnam. we got to correct that. That's the major lesson to come away with. Yeah, yeah. Frank, thank you so much for your time today. And um, I, I really hope this hasn't you know, sort of uh, made things worse for you today by chatting about this. But uh, thank you for your time and thoughts on everything. Well, exercising the ghosts is one way to put them to bed. Yeah.
yeah but where can listeners connect with you i have a uh, a website which is franksnapexclusives.com and a website franksnap.com so those are the ways to get in touch with me and uh, rants are welcome <laughs> thank you frank thanks for listening this is secrets and spies 